And then when I met my first group of professional designers, I was like, these are my people. These are my people. Like I, these are the people to whom I belong. And, you know, so I started going to design conferences as well as the anthropology conferences and, and finding again, more kinship there than I did in the anthropology. And so we began to build these communities of design anthropologists where people coming in design interested in anthropology, people with anthropology <laughs> who are moving into design and all these hybrid creatures like myself who live at that interstitial spaces between doing, making, thinking, learning, and trying to make the world a better place. Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Dr. Dori Tunstall. She is the Dean of Design at the Ontario College of Art and Design University, referred to as OCAD. She is part of their senior management team and plays a vital role in steering aspects of the academic and administrative agendas within the Faculty of Design, as well as related research outreach fundraising and operational activities. As the university has initiated the challenge of decolonizing its institution, Dory advocates and communicates how respectful design serves the appropriate design ethos for this process. Dory is a design anthropologist, public intellectual, and design advocate who works at the intersections of critical theory, culture, and design. She leads the Cultures-Based Innovation Initiative, focus on using old ways of knowing to drive innovation processes that directly benefits communities. Dory's career is expansive, global, and diverse. She has taught at Swinburne University in Australia, the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's held industry positions that included UX strategists for Sapien Corporation and ARC Worldwide. She holds a PhD in anthropology from Stanford University and a BA in Anthropology from Bryn Mawr College. You as a listener can support this show. It's so simple to do. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars. We currently have 71 ratings. We're at 4.9, which is all right. We want to get to five, so help us do that. And when you're at Apple Podcasts, leave us a comment. Currently, it's the only platform that allows for comments. It really helps us. And share this podcast with a friend. We got a great review from smohammed88 on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for that. They said kudos to Bon and his production team on a great podcast. So production team is basically my producer, Rob Pugliese. He's a production team of one. He spends hours on making this podcast sound great. The last one we did, he had spent four hours uh, doing the editing on. So thank you, Rob, for doing that. And what really inspires us, keeps us going, is when we get great reviews of the show. I know you're going to love my conversation with Dr. Dory Tunstall. She gave me so much energy and inspiration. Here it is. Welcome, Dr. Dory Tunstall, to Design Lab. Uh, where are you joining us from? I'm joining you here from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, or Takaranto, which is how you say it in the Mohawk language. Whoa, I never heard that. That's so <laughs> cool. My first question for you is how a Stanford-trained anthropologist became dean of a design school. <laughs> I wonder about that every day as well. So 
I studied anthropology, but I was always an unusual anthropologist. I was always really, as a child, and even through high school and university, I did a lot of art. So I was always interested in form and form making. And then when I went to go get my PhD, I got really interested in form and culture and con and, and context. And so even though I didn't know what the term was at the time, I was really looking at being a design anthropologist in the sense of that for my assignments, like, you know, you know how you have to do like a weekly response to your readings. So one week you might get a comic strip. <laughs> one week you might just get an abstract drawing. <laughs> one week you would actually get like a wall of, you know, lines of text and whatever. And so... Wait, can, can I interrupt? Let me understand yeah. this clearly. So for when you were a student and you had to provide the summary for those weekly readings, instead of submitting something on Microsoft Word, you would submit stuff like that? Yeah. What did you professors <laughs> think? Did they think, what is going on here? <laughs> well, uh, I think when I turned in my dissertation, so I did my research in fieldwork in Ethiopia, and actually each chapter had a different form based on the area of Ethiopia that I was in. And so like when I was in north of Ethiopia, it had the sort of uh, Gothic strip where they tell the story of uh, Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. So if you go into the churches, you see this a particular way of representing that story. So that entire chapter on Tigray was in that form. <laughs> this is all to say <laughs> that my professors generally said, like, I don't, I'm just assuming you're a genius and we'll just let it pass. <laughs> Because, you know, I could always do the academic stuff. So, you know, I could demonstrate my ability to do that. They just knew that I was also operating on another level and just allowed me to exist on that level as well. <laughs> That's fascinating. So the content was there, but it was a different form factor. Yeah, I love yeah. that. And do you feel like your training as an anthropologist has made you a better designer? Completely, completely. Because if you think about the way in which design makes everything in the world, anthropology actually helps you to understand what it is that people want, what it is that they need. So I always talk about the yin yang of design and anthropology, where you need both of that like yin energy of anthropology, where I'm just going to sit back and study what's going on and understand. And then that sort of active energy, that yang energy of design was like, okay, now let's go do something about that understanding. I always feel like if you brought those two in harmonious and dynamic relationship with each other, you actually have the context for sort of design for good, design for betterment, design for not just disruption, but for design for like continuity and culture and understanding. And so all of my skills <laughs> Um, as an anthropologist, I still use every single day. And I combine that with design in order to enact change, right? Organizational change within um, OCAD or wherever I'm sort of engaged with. And one of the similarities, I think, between anthropology and design is they're both great storytellers. <laughs> and there's a similarity there. And I've been hanging out with some anthropologists over the years in a global health space from uh, Princeton, Joao Beal, and Sebastian Ramirez. And there is this small but I think growing interest in this intersection of anthropology and medicine. You know, Dr. Paul Farmer is a, 
a leader in global health. He trained both in anthropology and in medicine. And I'm wondering, why do you think that is? Why is there a symbiotic relationship between medicine and anthropology? So actually, I got into anthropology because when I went to Bryn Mawr College, which is where I did my undergrad, I was going to be a doctor. Actually, I was going to be a neurosurgeon. Whoa, I did not know that. That's so cool. And you know, I'm we're I'm recording a few miles from Bryn Mawr College. <laughs> um, and so so I took my first physical anthropology class and a medical anthropology class because I was like, well, I'm, if I'm going to be a doctor, I probably should understand how medicine is thought about differently and in different places in the world. Again, it's a better way. Physical anthropology is more fun way to do anatomy. <laughs> so let me just go and do that. And I fell in love with with a different way of understanding people because I wanted to be a neurosurgeon because I wanted to understand how people think, right? And it's like, okay, synapses goes on and off. And that's how, from that perspective, you think about how you understand how people think. And I was like, oh, there's this entirely different way to understand how people think by like talking with them and living with them and interacting with them. So I, I took my first sort of anthropology classes were in physical and medical anthropology. And then I got booked and just continued to study anthropology in that way. So you went from becoming a doctor, wanting to become a doctor. I'm still a doctor. To, or a medical doctor <laughs> to becoming a doctor of anthropology to a dean of design. And did your family kind of freak out when oh, you were no longer pre-med and you wanted to go, it was like, I want to become an anthropologist. So when I got my PhD from anthropology at Stanford, my aunt finally turned to me and said, we were so worried about you when you decided, because, you know, they were like, you're going to be a neurosurgeon. Great. This is the house I want, the car I want. And when I said I was going to switch to anthropology, she said, I was really worried that we were going to be taking care of you for the rest of your life. And so when I got my degree and I got my first job actually in high tech consulting, then they felt like, yes, we hit the jackpot. She can take care of herself. She's still a doctor <laughs> and all is now well with the world with this decision that she made that we thought was a misdirection, but actually we see how it's perfect for her in terms of, again, being a person who's always critical about what's going on being a person who, again, deeply cares about people and wanting to understand them, being a person who wants to make a difference in the world and being a person who, again, like who's very interested in the underlying meaning of things. Like, mm -hmm. why is it that we do this? Why is it that we do that? And then what can we do about it? You are featured in Fast Company's new book, Innovation by Design, and a quote that I found surprising was you said, I didn't know what design was until I got out of the gra grad school. How, what was your design journey? How did you get into design? So again, I, I always did art, <laughs> but in a very designerly way when I actually met real designers. So when I left, my first job was at eLab, which then became Sapient Corporation. So this is like the height of the dot-com boom. It's like Y2K, so everyone's bored. And so I, I, instead of going into academia, 
again, Stanford, this is Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. I realized like the most interesting questions about like what's going on in the world is actually being asked in this high tech sector. So mm. I was like, I want to go work there because they're doing really interesting work. So I was able to go there. And then I met real designers like who trained <laughs> in graphic design or interaction design. And it, it was that moment where, you know, again, like I was always an unusual anthropologist because, again, I might turn in a comic strip or something or, again, you know, having entire chapters of my dissertation that are like hand drawn and all these sort of things where it's like, yeah, you belong, but you don't quite belong. And then when I met like my first group of like professional designers, I was like, these are my people. Mm. These are my people. Like I, these are the people to whom I belong. And, you know, so I started going to design conferences as well as the anthropology conferences and, and finding again, more kinship there than I did in the anthropology conferences. And then the beautiful thing happened where you have um, the anthro design lifts serve that gets created, the Yahoo group. You mm. get the ethnographic praxis and industry conference happening, EPIC. And so we began to build these communities of design anthropologists where people coming in design interested in anthropology, people with anthropology <laughs> who are moving into design and all these hybrid creatures like myself who live at that interstitial spaces between doing, making, thinking, learning, and trying to make the world a better place. So cool. And you have one of these hybrid programs at your university and your university again is a OCAD, Ontario College of Art and Design in Toronto. And you have a master of design in design for health program, which yes. I'm a huge fan <laughs> of. And I've sent people there there are <laughs> doctors who go hey i want to learn more about design and i was like well there's this program out there in toronto it looks pretty cool can you tell us about that program and why that program exists at ocad so our design master's is designed for health program and is an amazing program and it and again it has to do with you think again like design is the making of everything so the medical instruments that you use, somebody has to design and think about those. The way in which even, you know, like, please someone redesign the medical examination gown. Yes. <laughs> so all these things that are designed. And so if you're working with, and again, to design these things, you need to have in-depth medical knowledge. And you also have to have the skills, right, to be able to make them to the level of precision sometimes that they're required. So we're in the city of Toronto. The city of Toronto is an amazing health center, like in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so we thought it was really important to build a program that brought together those who have the public health expertise, because that's one of the things that we really focus on. The, again, medical, clinical practitioner expertise, as well as designers who, again, can enter into those spaces and work collaboratively together to design better solutions. And so we work with Baycrest Hospital a lot. We work with a uni University of Toronto Medical Center. I mean, we work with everyone because again, every aspect of the medical experience has a design experience attached to it. And so if you bring in professional designers, you can create better experiences for 
practitioners as well as for patients and even for, again, the, the support systems that exist around caretaking. Mm. I wish I could enroll in that program myself because I never <laughs> formally trained in design and it's ironic that I, I teach it, but I think it's great because people forget that everything from your medical bills, that you know, how they're designed from the devices to the spaces. And I just think there need to be more of these types of programs out there. And, and it's not. And I'm wondering why you think that is, because, you know, part of what I try to do is democratize design and, mm -hmm, you know, make mm -hmm. design accessible for non-designers, especially working in the healthcare space, like doctors and nurses and administrators. Can you give me some advice on how to do this? <laughs> well, I think, you know, I think a lot of people who come actually join the program, there's normally a very personal driver. So right now I'm expecting, we're expecting that our intake for next year is going to be higher, actually just because of the pandemic. Yeah, for sure. Where so many people now have realized the failures of the health mm -hmm. <laughs> um, system. And now they're like, I need to level up in my understanding of it as a system. I need to level up in terms of understanding what are the specific kinds of interventions that we can make. So most of the time, there's a significant personal driver for someone who says, I need to level up in order to bring about the kind of health system intervention that I think needs to be done in order to create, again, a better patient experience, a better doctor experience, a better caretaker's experience. And, and so I think that's the most important thing is I always say when someone comes to talk to me, it's like, what's the intervention you want to make in the world? That is a great question. I love that. And then it's, then do you need uh, the design skills or do you need the health skills, right? The understanding in order to make that intervention. And then we talk about like, again, how the program allows you to be able to do that. I wanted to get your thoughts on the role of design when developing new technologies and learn, because I know you have talked about this and, mm -hmm. and how we could learn in the healthcare space because new technologies introduced in healthcare space all the time, you know, telehealth platforms, uh, artificial intelligence for medical decision-making, the Apple watch that can be used for research now, <laughs> mRNA vaccines. And in healthcare, I feel like we forget the role of design, the importance of the role of design in developing these new technologies. Um, so what's really interesting, let, let me just sort of say in terms of like the role of technology, that there's one spectrum in terms of like how technology allows us to better see and understand that's happening in bodies. That is amazing, right? So this is the part where, yes, we have all this data, but how we're able to visualize this data, how we're able to use it as a diagnostic tool, even in some ways, I'm quite fascinated by the, the ways in which we're using simulations as a way to begin to think about what are the possibilities of treatment. So there's, a, there's some really amazing work that's being done at that end of the scale. <laughs> the other end of the scale, or another point of no, no, maybe that's a better way to say it, is where I, where I have a little bit of, where I experience a bit of tension is probably the best way to explain it, is that 
all of these technologies, which are in some ways teaching us not to listen to our bodies, not to listen to our environment. So like, again, like the Apple watch, I'll pick on the Apple watch, right? <laughs> it's like, why do I need a watch to tell me what my heartbeat is? Because I can just be still and listen, right? Mm. How do I need, why do I need them to tell me? I mean, now they can tell me like how much oxygen is in my blood. <laughs> I should be able to feel <laughs> my lung capacity and be able to determine these things. And so there's a way in which I feel tech, any technology that moves you away from a deeper understanding of your own body or again, in the context of where you're trying to explain to someone else to help you, right? Like there's a way that like, okay, show me what your Apple watch does. Well, but let me tell you like what's going on in the context and the story around what it is that I'm feeling. Cause I'm so attuned to my body that I can tell you, okay, my heart began to fluctuate at this particular time because I just had a very difficult talk call with a person, which probably says that, you know, these things might be more stress-related than something else. Mm -hmm. That's just a readout, right? So there's a bit of tension I always feel where technology and these, especially like these amazing censoring technologies are really good in terms of, again, helping us to see mm -hmm but they should never get in the way of us being able to mm. feel what's going on in our own bodies, to trust what's going on in our own bodies, and then to be able to communicate that in a in-depth, contextually rich story yeah. to someone who's trying to help us figure those things out. And so part of technology, and this is the part where like, as an anthropologist, I get really excited because part of technology is figuring out where it doesn't belong. <laughs> as well as where it does belong. And that's where like someone who comes out of the masters of design for health might have a different view than someone who's coming out of an institution that's just really focused on the technology. Cause they're like, let's put technology everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> It'll make things more effective and efficient. And then there, and there's this assumption that technology yeah. is safe. Yes. <laughs> and that new technology is always better. Right. And but new technology can also harm. Exactly, exactly. So, so part of that, that contextual understanding, and, and we get a lot of this because, you know, here in Toronto or Takaranto, we work a lot with indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, in dialogue, help us reframe our understanding of like, what is health? what is moving in a good way through health. And a lot of it, again, is that listening to yourself, listening to the environment, listening to each other, which can be mediated through technology. But, you know, we've been on this planet as human beings for, you know, at least, let's say, culturally speaking, if you're looking at Australian Aboriginal culture documented for 65,000 years, and we've gotten along <laughs> pretty well without the Apple Watch. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so we're very interested in figuring out where technology does and does not belong mm. in the health experience, figuring out. And again, that's where the, the designer is different from the engineer who is different from even the cl clinician, because we're really trying to figure out like, where does technology get in the way of the clinician? 
where because again they're just they're they're trying to understand the story and the, the data and then what decisions that they can make around practicing what are the options that might help or not help right and no one asks those type of questions where does a technology belong where doesn't it belong and that's a role of design in, mm -hmm. in healthcare. It's mm -hmm. important to ask those questions, but rarely do those types of questions get asked. Right. They're like, more. <laughs> Can we make more technology? Can we create an entire technological human being structure that doesn't, you know, that doesn't even require human beings to interact with one another in order to figure things out? <laughs> it's dizzying. I'm seeing these new technologies, everything from VR to holograms to AI, machine learning. And I don't think people are asking those types of questions. Do we need these type of technologies? How do they fit in and what are the harms that may happen when these technologies are implemented? I say the one that most excites me because it actually deals with reality as well as like, I'm really interested in the experimentations that are happening around augmented reality and mixed reality, because I think can, like, can you explain the difference between those two? What between <laughs> augmented and mixed? Well, okay. So augmented, the way to think of augmented reality is that you have in some ways like a screen that's put in the place of, uh, well, put it not in the place, put in front of reality, right? So it's a thing where I'm looking at what's going on, but there's a filter that's there in front of it. And we do augmented reality all the time where we put our screens up in front of our, you know, like if so, if you're on Instagram and you're putting up a, oh, <laughs> a face. selfie yep. uh -huh. and you have fake makeup on, right? Yep. And that's like augmented reality. And we use that all the time. Again, mixed reality is in some ways, I think of, if you think of augmented reality, as kind of like that snapshot. Mixed reality is again, having more control over how many layers of information is in front of you? How realistically are you engaging with the world outside and there? And then again, that thing of finding what's the appropriate levels of interface to put in between those things, depending on what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a thing where there's maybe points where you're like completely virtual but then let's say it opens back up where more of reality can come into your view and understanding. And, and so it's kind of mixed and more dynamic in that way. I'm looking forward to seeing these different sort of platforms as I practice medicine and how mm -hmm. they'll come into play in, in the future. I want to shift gears and talk about a quote that you had in Fast Company. You said, uh, I believe the next 10 years will be the decade of design decolonization. Yes. And I'm curious to know what does that mean? <laughs> well, I think so decolonization is a is the term that is used to talk about like what are the ways in which we can respect indigenous sovereignty and indigenous people. And so this requires, again, in United States, Canada, these are places where the indigenous people were colonized. So people from Europe came from Europe to build a better life in United States and Canada, dispossessed the indigenous peoples, the indigenous nations of their land, their language, their culture, in some cases, even removed their children from their communities. And so decolonization is the process of repatriation, reparations, 
and, and facilitating this process of indigenous revitalization. So this means in design, when we tell the story of design, we normally tell the story of design as something that happened in Europe in the 1800s, and that ignores thousands of years of making, right? So you have, you know, indigenous cultures that were making stuff for 20,000 years. Again, in Aboriginal Australia, you can go back to 65,000 years of making functional objects that some of which we don't even understand today, like mm -hmm. how they were made and how they operate and how they work. They were so technologically sophisticated, right? So decolonization is understanding that history that we've told this mythology of what design is. And you could say the same thing for medicine, right? So we yeah. tell this story I'm, of I'm medicine. I'm just drawing so many parallels between medicine. <laughs> yeah. So we get the same thing as medicine. It's like, why is it that only certain practices of medicine are accepted as medicine and others are folk, you know, like... Western again, medicine is Western, normalized right. while everything else is alternative. Right. You know, I'm, I'm Korean and my parents are from South Korea and our relatives, we all practice alternative medicine right. with like acupuncture and all this herbal stuff. And it's seen as alternative. It's not Correct. part of the normalization, what we call Western medicine. Correct. And so, so there's a process in design that is similar process that's happening in medicine where you're saying, well, actually this is just one story of what this could be. There are other stories, so let's start telling those stories. Let's start telling the story of indigenous design. Let's start telling the story of you know, African design. Let's start telling the story on the equal level mm. of Europe, the design histories of these other places, and then create the structures and institutions and curriculum that supports this broader understanding of everyone that there's these multiple stories of what design is and what it could be. So it's more than just diversity and inclusion? More than diversity and inclusion. And the, the way I try to distinguish that is that um, the end goal of decolonization is indigenous sovereignty, right? Indigenous mm. sovereignty. And what that means, again, is like giving back land and resources to indigenous communities so that they can self-define and determine who they are and what they want to be in the future. And in order to be prepared for that, because now we've had, you know, 500 years of colonization, there's a lot of work that has to be done with making everyone feel comfortable with that reality, right? So where in OCAD University as an institution, how do we begin to build space? We have an indigenous visual cultural program. Mm. So then that becomes a space in which you build indigenous autonomy, mm. right? And begin to do experiments in indigenous pedagogy. And so that can exist, you know, in parallel to what we're doing. But then again, as it does, it begins to diffuse and bleed over so that then everyone who graduates from OCAD University will be comfortable with the experience of indigenous sovereignty because they learned that it's okay to be in this system where you have indigenous leadership, mm -hmm. right? So Stephen Foster, the Dean of the Faculty of Art is indigenous, right? Mm -hmm. Haida background, which is sort of West Coast indigenous here in Canada, right? So as they get used to that, when that begins to change all over society, no one freaks out about it, right? Yeah. 
And so again, if you think of the context of medicine, beginning to integrate indigenous senses of well-being, right? Indigenous ways of building a good life and taking care of health, and that becomes normalized, right, mm. within the medical establishment. So when, again, when people encounter that, that there's special hospitals that are built <laughs> on indigenous ways of knowing and health, no one is freaked out about that or threatened by that because they know what that experience of indigenous sovereignty is and what it means and that there actually might be benefit benefits for them as well. Mm. Thanks for explaining that. I'm My mind is just uh, buzzing right now of thinking of parallels between me medicine and the med school pedagogy mm -hmm. because I think that there are many parallels. And, and I wanted to jump on a similar thread. You know, we talked a little bit about diversity inclusion, how this is different, but your university seems so diverse in your design school, <laughs> right? It's, you're a black woman who's a dean of a design school. That's pretty rare, right? Right, yeah. I'm the, I'm the first black and black female dean of a faculty of design anywhere in the world. That's extraordinary. <laughs> well, and it says a lot about like, again, because people are like, well, what about in Africa? And it's like, well, in Africa, you don't have faculty of design, right? Like you may have individual design programs. You might have, they might exist in like a faculty of art or architecture or the same with the Caribbean, right? Mm -hmm. And so all these places where you think, oh, there's black people there. So there must be a black dean. It's like, well, actually there isn't faculty of designs there, which says a lot, yeah. right? And then in other places, again, it's a thing where design has not always been seen as a um, safe or welcoming space uh, for, well, indigenous black and, and other mm. sort of racialized people, right? Because our story, right? That story of design as something that came out of Europe in the 1800s excludes a lot of people. Mm. And by reinforcing that Europeanness through our design competitions and our notions of what is good design and our design awards and all these sort of things that people then feel like I can't, I don't belong in that and I can't contribute to that. And some aspects of those practices have been quite harmful. So if you think about what is the vehicle by which racial stereotypes travel, that's through design, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to do a lot of work in certain communities to get over the fact that actually these practices have been quite harmful for them to see the value of those practices for themselves and for their communities. And so part of decolonization is opening up that space as well for them to see, ah, this can be useful to my community, not just to me personally to get a job and whatever, but for my community who needs these skills, right? Needs to be able to see a world that's for them and by them, right? I want to continue on this thread of opening up to the community in, in a safe space. I think a lot about the lack of diversity in medical schools. Mm -hmm. So the percentage of U.S. doctors who are black has you know barely risen in the past 120 years. So mm -hmm. one, one stat is, you know, about 13% of our U.S. population is black, but only about 5% of physicians are black. And that's pretty much been the same. And I'm wondering what we can learn about your approach on uh, decolonizing design of mm. maybe, you know, how can we implement some of 
the principles in medical school because I just, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that is, you know, a lot of structural racism in medicine. And I, and I feel like we need to decolonize medicine. How do we do that? You know, this is not a term that I'm familiar with. So when I, when I heard about decolonizing design, I was like, we need to decolonize the house of medicine. Well, and this is the thing where, you know, this is where almost you have to go outside of Canada and United States in some ways to see what are, what is done in places that, again, where colonization was not so effective in removing quote unquote indigenous practices, Mm -hmm. right? And then see how they talk about health and how they structure health there. And then, so then it's the same thing that we're doing here, you know, at OCAT. So we begin to bring in diverse faculty, Mm. right? Who have, who come with a different understanding of what health and well-being is, right? Mm. So this might, like, let's say for example, like, the Center for Health and Well-Being in many African-American communities are actually the barbers, right? The barber shops. <laughs> so, so what does it mean to understand and respect that individual as someone who has medical knowledge, right? Because again, when they're dealing with the body, they're noticing sort of changes in the body. They're noticing sort of symptoms that might be happening. Like they can actually tell you a lot about like, is this person, you know, like, like someone said, like from the texture of the hair, I can tell whether or not you are drinking or not drinking, if you are taking really good care of yourself or not. So let's assume that the, the barber is the prototype of like the sort of black community health figure. And what that you, happened during the pandemic around right, vaccines right, right, dis- right, distribution that right. barbershops were seen as a trusted source of medical information and were used as a way to distribute vaccines among black populations. Yeah. So what if we begin to recognize that knowledge and understanding and bring that into, again, our medical institution? So we begin to hire barber faculty right? (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And we begin to create sort of, you know, medical classes and things on like, like, what is it that the, the, the Dr. Barber, right? What is the Dr. Barber? How do they understand their patients? How do they facilitate uh, storytelling that allows them to understand what's going on? Right. Cause I would say some of the very medically trained doctors can learn a lot about creating a space for storytelling so that you get a more holistic sense of what's going on with your patient, right? So you begin to build that into the curriculum and then you begin to sort of, again, set up the institutional structures that recognize this as a form of knowledge, right? And so you can do this, like, again, you know, when you think of like herbal medicine, right? Especially if you think of like, you know, the South Korean and the Chinese and then the Ayurvedic, right, systems that exist all the world for like 10,000 years (laughs) documented, right? And you begin to, again, say, okay, let's bring in these herbalist doctors into our medical establishment. Where do they contribute, especially around prevention? And then begin to develop the courses, begin to develop the recognition and again, have them part of the, like the hospital. I can mm-hmm. choose my oncologist if I need to, but also the as part of the team, the mm-hmm. herbalist that I need to be able to sort of create an, an holistic medical system, right? And so that's how decolonization begins to work is you recognize that there are other ways of doing things, bring them 
in critical mass, right, to into institutions so that they can begin to change the structures and begin to change the content. And then again, make sure on the outside that you're then recognizing their institutions as well as bringing them into these other institutions as well so that then people have choices and no one feels, you know, and it's like you have to work with the health insurance industry so that, you know, your visit to the herbalist is covered in the same way as your visit to, you know, your general practitioner. My mind is exploding right now. I love <laughs> all of this stuff. One question I like to ask guests is, yeah, and this, I think this will be our final question because we're running out of no, time, sadly. No, we're having so much fun. Is, uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on how might we design a healthier life? You know, we've had to think about this a lot, right, because of the pandemic. And there were, I think for me, there were four major changes that I actually had to make to design a healthier life for myself. First, I brought in more green plants, other living things, and the care of them requires two things, self-awareness by paying attention to what's happening with them. So I know when I'm too dehydrated or I'm not because my plants show my neglect of self. And so, so that was one thing that I really sort of focused on. And even like not this summer, but the previous summer, I actually grew like a patio garden because my ability to, to, to sustain them reflected my own care that I was giving myself. Mm. The second your, thing your I- Your plants were almost a surrogate biomarker of your health. Exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And which again is actually how it functions. Like when we talk about like why we are interconnected, like our environment, our neglect of our environment is also a reflection of our neglect of self, yeah. right? The second thing that I had to do was really up my workout routine. So I actually invested in a personal trainer who trains me for one hour, three times a week without fail. And, and that was important because right before COVID, I was actually starting to have stress-related heart issues. And so I knew I needed to do something anyway, but the COVID reminded me again of that self-neglect right, that I was doing. And so I needed to invest in my own strength, right? So for me, it's not necessarily about cardio, it was actually strengthening my body. The third thing that I really had to learn was really just like sleep and hydration. And it's a thing where I'm so attuned now where I know when I'm tired because I'm not drinking enough water versus what I'm tired because I've just been staring at a screen all day. But it's a thing where like, again, when you're super busy, and again, it's not that I'm not busy, super busy now, but there's a way in which like, again, that self-neglect happens. And because I've been home, right, again, I've been, it's, you know, like I could reach over, you can see, grab water out of the refrigerator and drink it easily as I'm in a, another Zoom meeting. And so it's just that attunement mm -hmm. to I need to drink the attunement between like my eyes are so tired because of my looking at a Zoom screen all day. So I just need to shut them for at least a good solid eight hours. All of those things have become really important. And then the last thing is just how and why I need human connection. 
Um, Cause I'm a person who I put a lot of energy out in the world is <laughs> probably the, the, the diplomatic way to say it, but I'm actually also an introvert, right? So there's a way in which like, I Wait, do that. Wait, you I, are? I am an introvert. And again, it's just the way the energy works, right? So it's again, if I'm putting out energy, that again, that's part of being an introvert is that someone is taking your energy, whereas I don't draw energy from other people, right? I give energy out, right? And so, so I've learned to be like, okay, this is a person that I need to be in face-to-face -face interaction with because actually we have a really beautiful exchange of energy that happens. This is a person where like, the lack of energy that comes through on a Zoom call works best because I just need to be on a Zoom call with this, this individual. This is a person with whom, like, again, I want to be on a telephone call for because, with because there's a way in which I find I used to telephone longer, right? And so I don't lose any energy connecting with that person through telephone. And I forget, actually, the time, right? And so I've been learning to, like, working with different people, how my energy works well or not well with them, and then figuring out like, what's the communication modality that best preserves my energy. <laughs> and those are all the things that's like, you know, <laughs> the four things that I've really had to learn these last 18 months in order to preserve not just my physical health, but also my, my mental health and well-being. Thank you for sharing those tips. I love them. Dr. Dory Tunstall, thank you for giving me energy. And I know <laughs> you're going to energize all of our listeners. We appreciate you being on the show. You can find Dr. Dory Tunstall on both Twitter and Instagram. Her Twitter handle is at D-O-R-I underscore D-A-N-T-H-R-O on Instagram she can be found at D-E-A-N-D-O-R-I underscore O-C-A-D-U. I love her posts on Instagram. I know you will too. And you can reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram as well. I can be found on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Remember, go to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave a comment. Design Lab was produced by Rob Levisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.